Yes. Making a reveal. Making a reveal. Welcome to episode 37 of Rank and Review, WTF Volume 3, Originals. J. Adrian Cook is returning again to look at six very interesting and original films. All of these films have something about them that makes them unique. The filmmaker, the subject, the approach, they all have something that seemed intentionally or no makes the audience members brain hurt, enticing them to utter the words, what the fuck. I guess it goes without saying that there will be coarse language in this episode, as well as spoilers for the six movies discussed. If you would like to send feedback to Rankin Review, you're welcome to do so. Please send your emails to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. I hope you enjoy episode 37 of Rankin Reviews, WTF Originals. So this is J. Adrian Cook's fifth appearance, fifth, fifth appearance on Rankin Review, uh, and we are doing What the Fuck Originals. If Agreed. that's what you'd like to call it, yes. <laughs> WTF Originals. Because I do think that these movies are all like movies that will make you say, what the fuck, out loud <laughs> when you watch them. <laughs> and I do think that they are all very original in some aspect or another. Indeed. <laughs> uh, can't really say you, you will see any other movies like them. Or even compare them to any other movies. <laughs> they have their own genre. Uh, and that's one of the things that's going to be different about this episode, because I don't think you could honestly straight-face call all of these horror movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, I Let me tell you about why I chose this category. Go. Um, honestly, it was... Uh, in this late summertime of this year, I was seized with an uncontrollable desire to watch the movie Phantasm again. <laughs> And I can't explain it. I just You don't have to justify that to me. <laughs> I started thinking about it, and it consumed me. <laughs> I hadn't seen this movie for about 15 years. And but then it was time. It suddenly came back to me, so I said, i got to see Phantasm. And then I guess I got saddled with these other movies. <laughs> it was a package deal. It was like when Kevin shows uh, his bad trips because he wanted to watch Joyride in... Then realized that Joyride wasn't one of the selections. Yeah, so well what, played, Mr. Stiller. Why did you uh, choose to put uh, non-horror movies in with this uh, with this particular package? Well, I think that the what the fuck category itself, I'm just opening it up a little bit more, um, and I part of my sort of uh, plan with the rank and review is to convince more people that every movie is secretly a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> um, I do think that there's horrific elements to all of, all of these movies. 
Absolutely. Uh, I will say all of these movies. <laughs> I, I was stricken with horror several times during Naked Lunch in particular, even though I wouldn't call that a, a horror, horror movie. movie. No. But, uh, yeah, um, they're strange. They're hard to categorize movies. But I thought that they were worth talking about. And I think people who are genre people are, you know... It's like Guillermo del Toro, a man whom I hold near and dear, famously said... He could never imagine himself making a movie that didn't have a monster or a ghost or an alien or some something like that in it. <laughs> and I guess that's where my fandom kind of is. If you've got a monster in your movie or some kind of weird hinky angle, I'm more intrigued by it. And that's my appetite. I'm also drawing all these movies out of my personal collection. <laughs> so yes. uh, that's that's part of the reason they were grouped together. And that's why I had to watch Southland Tales again <laughs> if I wanted to see Phantasm. <laughs> it's the price you pay. <laughs> yep. It's the price you pay. <laughs> so uh, I arranged these movies in a descending order of madness, um, starting with the most sane. And if you can believe it, Phantasm is actually the, the most coherent of all of these movies. <laughs> this is going to be a controversial episode. <laughs> uh, you've got the, the movies there. You want to read them off? Okay, in the, in the order we're going to go? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So first off, we're going to get this Phantasm thing off to Harry's chest, which I'm really curious about. <laughs> uh, we have an interesting period horror comedy anthology, I Sell the Dead. Uh, episodic, I guess. It's not period either. <laughs> no, anyways, we'll get to that. <laughs> uh, we have the French film by Jeannot et Carreau, Delicatessen. Uh, it's uh, yeah, two French dudes made a really bizarre French movie that warrants discussion. <laughs> Cannibalism is at the heart of it. <clears throat> well, that's part of the reason is here. Yes. Terry Gilliam, who I haven't talked about too much in this podcast yet, but I do like him, uh, adapting the unadaptable Hunter S. Thompson book, Fear and Loathing, in Las Vegas. Um, interesting, interesting stuff. From the writer-director of Donnie Darko, Richard Kelly, Southland Tales, starring Not the Rock. He changed it to Dwayne Johnson for this movie. Really? For this movie. This was the first movie where he was not credited as The Rock. Well, he chose a, a hell of a time to do it. <laughs> and last but not least, uh, David Cronenberg, again trying to adapt an unadaptable book, this time by William S. Burroughs, uh, Naked Lunch, starring Robocop himself, Peter Weller. <laughs> yes, it's that weird, ladies and gentlemen. So, um, not your typical horror genre crowd this episode, but I think interesting. And um, I think these movies are worth talking about. <laughs> Whether how worth checking out they are, I guess, is a matter of uh, individual taste. It almost seems like, for a lot of these, um, you can't really spoil them because they're so weird. Yeah. Uh, you you would you can give away plot threads, for instance, in Southland Tales, and you wouldn't be spoiling anything. You wouldn't you wouldn't be ruining the movie for anybody because it has to be seen to be understood. Yes, you have to experience these movies, and then you don't even understand it anyway. <laughs> All right, shall we begin? Oh God, yes. Phantasm. Is it a nightmare? Ah! 
phantasm? Is it an illusion? Phantasm. Is it an evil? So, uh, Don Coscarelli. <laughs> Interesting dude. <laughs> uh, say what you will about his movies. They are distinctly his. Uh, and they're kind of all over the map. And uh, this was his one of his earliest uh, projects. Phantasm, his first sort of foray into the horror movie. And uh, he continued making Phantasm for a couple decades. There is... I believe five Phantasm movies directed by Coscarelli, or at least written or co-written uh, by Coscarelli. Three, I think he did, and then somebody else picked up the fourth. You picked up the ball. Yeah. I... <laughs> oh, <man>. oh, Larry. <laughs> you know the the promotional material for this mentions the spheres constantly, so I don't. I don't. Uh, Fault you for giving such a bad pun. Uh, actually, that's congratulations. Let's <laughs> <laughs> see if you can do us more. <laughs> well, um, it's weird because I find this movie kind of challenging. We, uh, and I'm not far be it for me to come down on somebody who's making a low budget horror movie. But this looks and feels like a low budget horror movie to me. There are some awkward performances, and uh, there is, you know, it's not high quality film, and you can tell that it was made a while ago, and uh, with not a, not a ton of money. In the late 70s. Yeah. Um, and just that handmade feel, I mean, on one heart, my heart goes out, and I sort of love them for doing it. On another heart, it's sort of a distancing factor. It kind of, in a way, would push you back from any kind of real disturbing chills in some respects. Agreed. Um... Shall we discuss the plot? I would let you to crack that code for me, by all means, Jeremy. Okay, all right. <laughs> Basically, um, what this this movie is about a young boy named Mike who discovers that there's strange doings down at the Morningside Cemetery. Yeah. And it's all centered around an immortal, shape-shifting undertaker named the Tall Man. And we can get into the weirdness about, about surrounding the tall man maybe a little bit later in this review. But um, That's a fairly generous plot summary, too, because there's a whole lot of, was it a dream, what happened and what didn't in some parts into this movie. Yes. Uh, Wikipedia um, has Don Corelli talking about this movie, saying that it's about death and it was purposefully written in a dreamlike quality. Yeah. But I have to doubt that quite honestly i have to doubt that and the reasons why are um first of all exhibit a the other phantasm movies yes uh they are much more coherent than this movie when they have more money and more directorial experience well them. that's why i see phantasm 2 sort of being an evil dead 2 to this phantasm's evil dead yes um and the tone of this movie is not often deliberately funny yeah and yeah there's just a lot of scenes in this movie that are poorly edited they just go on too long more than they're longer than they're supposed to and then if something doesn't happen uh we're just supposed to accept that it was a dream and it was weird no sorry sorry i think it was poor uh poor directorial uh choices and poor editing 
But it, something in this movie must have spoke to you because it called back to you after it did. over a decade. It did. And that's just the weirdness behind it because this movie, when you first watch it, seems like, okay, we're, we're heading into a standard uh, slasher movie with young people getting killed, even though I guess it predates um, a lot of slasher movies. I think... Uh, Michael Myers came Halloween. before it. Yeah, Halloween came before it. But certainly, it predates Friday the 13th, and it predates... Yeah, this is right Friday. about the time where the sl- slasher movie was about to explode, but I don't know if I would call this a slasher movie, necessarily. <laughs> well, you, you, put the, you put the crappy synth score in there, and <laughs> you put the young people in there, and the women taking their clothes off, and Sin getting punished, and you start thinking, okay, this is... The yeah, template is there. This is the template. But then... <laughs> It just takes you someplace you're never going to expect. And it builds the weirdnesses so lovely. (laughs) It it starts off with the tall man uh, murdering people. And we see him moving full coffins by himself. Just lifting them like they're nothing. Yes. And then we see him transforming and shape-shifting into a beautiful woman. And Mike is stalked by these... uh, creatures in the undergrowth of the cemetery which turn out to be these dwarves and we're not given any explanation as to why these jawa looking dwarves are attacking him well, my understanding <laughs> is they're the ground down hollowed out version of the corpses he's been stolen yes 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 but that's explained yeah. later right yes later yes, but for, the, the, for about 40 minutes of movie he's you just, just got to take everything that comes yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're just taking this right on the chin <laughs> yeah yeah um and then a flying sphere flies through the air inexplicably and burrows it in, uh, itself into a, uh, well, some kind of minion anyway. Oh, yeah. burrows into his head and right. spouts a drill and goes, <laughs> spurts brains everywhere. And it then, seemed like a public place, too. Just like, it, and then it started killing people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then the tall man's fingers get cut off and they gout yellow blood. And then the fingers turn into a horrible uh, fly creature. <laughs> Uh, it's just not explained. It is not explained for so long, and just when you start thinking, this is never going to be explained, I am so lost, the movie just suddenly shifts gears. Our heroes walk into this mortuary. And everything is explained to them. (laughs) Yes, and it's this pure, white, blazing room. It's so completely different from in any other environment. Yes, and it's brilliant. And there's these <laughs> stacks of barrels in there filled with uh, dwarves and a vibrating portal to another dimension where these dwarves are being used as slave labor. And that weirdly charming filter, when you get to see the other side, you briefly get a peek on what this distant planet or dimension is, and it's all trippy <laughs> oh. for lack of a better word and yeah it, honestly it made me think about this movie long after the rest of it was forgotten was this this idea behind it it's very memorable yeah. uh, it's a weird marriage because like i say it has a rough hewn handmade quality and yet there's real imagination behind it I, I like the imagination behind it, but I don't necessarily think that there's a lot of talent behind the camera yet. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think some credit can be given to Angus Grimm. He's an imposing figure. He does a good job being the weird tall man, I think. 
Um, and Reggie Bannister has a cult following, and uh, <laughs> I think the best thing he does in this movie is play the banjo, right? Uh, the guitar. <laughs> the and guitar, the, the, right? the role was written specifically for him. Yeah. Uh, because Don Coscarelli said, hey, be in my movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're seeing cool. Uh, well, and that's sort of the same thing right around the same time when uh, Romero was doing Dawn of the Dead. Two of the main people in the cast are people that he just sort of bumped into at a restaurant. And one of them was like, yeah, I'm wanting to be an actor. Oh, come try out. And the guy who was the cook there was like, I want to try out too. Bam, there's like half your cast for Dawn of the Dead. <laughs> right place, yeah. right time. Yep. Um, and uh, that's a great story for them and a great, you know, way to be involved in a cult movie. <laughs> but um, I think it sort of reflects the how, you know, low-end, low-budget they are shooting here. Um, no stars to be seen, and that's okay uh, if... You're making a low-budget horror movie. I'm, I'm on your side. <laughs> Believe it. Were there any specific performances for you that just uh, took you out? Because I thought, I thought the little kid was pretty great. And Our, yeah, the kid protagonist was probably the best. There was just something about the performances that, I don't know, it felt like first pass to me, you know? It felt <laughs> like that was the first take. I don't know. I, I sound like I'm being really mean to it. I don't hate this movie. Mm -hmm. I, like I say, I... I like the imagination in the movie. I, I've said this in the past now, and it sounds blasphemous because so many remakes are awful, but what would you think of a modernized remake of Phantasm reimagined? I, yeah, I, I've heard your theory about how you should remake bad films. Yeah. And I'm not saying that this is a bad film at, by any means. But, but it's a good idea, It's right? a great idea, and I think it could be remade pretty successfully, for yeah. sure. But it's hard for me to sing too loudly about phantasms. Mm -hmm. well, it's not necessarily going to be super high on the list for me. Let me let me tell you about my favorite moment in this movie. Please. Another another thing that just blew, blew me out of the water watching this was when Mike has cut off the tall man's fingers and saved them, puts them in this box, and his plan is that he's going to go show his brother. In any other movie. He would have opened up the box and it would have been this scene where like, oh, they're gone. And then his brother would have been like, oh, you're just a stupid kid and I don't believe you and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, once again, very frustrating scene where nobody believes the kid. Yeah. But in this movie, they open up the box. He sees the fingers there twitching and he yeah. says, well, I believe you. Yeah. <laughs> when irrefutable evidence is put in front of him, he believes it. Yeah. The theme of death is also interesting. We, the, the kid's a widow, or a widow, he's an orphan. Yes. The kid is an orphan and uh, he's really worried that his older brother is going to abandon him. And uh, as the story sort of plays out, we find out that his brother sort of abandons him, right? Uh, but it's like a weird afterthought moment where Reggie mentions that, oh, by the way, <laughs> he was, your brother's killed in a car accident and uh, I'll do everything I can to take care of you. Uh, so he spent the whole movie fearing death and the whole death in the cemetery and the bodies being fucked with. And But what was the payoff for that? Apparently there were uh, multiple endings for this movie. Because uh, all I can think of is, yeah, it's inevitable you are going to die. Credits. Mm-hmm. And I, again, I mean, I guess that's scary, but I, I don't know. It felt like it was building to bigger, to something bigger than a jump scare to me. Yep, I agree. Ending left me cold. But uh, yeah, there it is. Phantasm. Um, before oh. you, uh, before you move on, though, did you notice that the little kid Mike 
was the Kwisatz Haderach from Dune. I did not. Yeah, yeah. Much like Paul Atreides, he puts his hand in a box <laughs> and feels pain until he's told that the pain is just in his mind, and oh, then he's right. able to remove it. Huh. Yeah. Pretty great kid, by the way. They say don't work with kids or animals, but I thought he did a really great Depends job. Depends on the kid or the animal. Yeah. And his character was pretty great, too. I liked how he always ran towards the danger instead of away from it. <laughs> he has this great MacGyver moment where he finds a... He needs to get out of his room, and he finds a shot shell in his pocket, sticks oh, yes. a thumbtack into it, tapes it to a hammer, and then blows the door open by hitting the hammer and the shot against it. <laughs> Anyway, I also one more one more yet addendum. Yes, to the seventies, a time where any man is a leading man. <laughs> I loved his shirt. <laughs> uh, the fashion all over the place. I just want to own the whole movie. We keep this whiskey here flowing. We'll have ourselves a little chat. Well, that's a fair trade then. So tell me, how did you start out? in your life a crime? Well, I suppose I'd have to go back a bit. Back to when I first met Willie. Willie got me into the trade. Grave rub? Yeah. Mm, bloody good one, too. Mainly, though, we were under the thumb of one Dr. Vernon Quint. He was a fiend. I need more corpses, and I need them now. I don't care where they come from. Fanny Bryars. Oh! Oh! You are our apprentice, not our partner. You're gonna rein it in a little low. I'm sick of being broke. You stupid cow! Get run-ins with a crowd of lunatics called the House of Murphy. Well, let me tell you, I love this trade, Mr. Blake. <laughs> so, I said this is a list of original movies. This is a film called I Sell the Dead. It's the debut feature from Glenn McQuaid. And it is the life story of a grave robber. Um, it's like a hobbit meets Hellboy. Dominic Monaghan is uh, being interviewed by Ron Perlman, this uh, priest who's come to hear his story. And uh, they're sharing a bottle of booze, and uh, on the eve of his execution, on the eve of his execution, his partner, he is told, is already executed. And uh, the movie opens with us seeing that act going down, um, and we see a series of stories of adventures and misadventures that happen to these two colorful grave robbers. Um, I've I've not seen this movie before. It's very clearly inspired by these guys, Burke and Hare, who. Um, were hired by those people doing medical research. Anatomists. Anatomists yeah. to acquire corpses. The fresher, the better. And these two men ended up turning to murder to meet the supply of the demand. And I think the doctors kind of turned a blind eye because they didn't like dissecting, bloating, maggot-filled, rotten corpses <laughs> either. And they were trying to justify it in the forwarding of education and medical science. Lives would be saved by this death. Um, but he also wanted to include zombies, aliens, and vampires. So, uh... <laughs> oh, did I mention there's zombies, aliens, and vampires in this as well? Uh, 
We also get a treat of, uh, yes, Angus Grimm, the tall man from Phantasm, also shows up here playing a son of a bitch. <laughs> mm-hmm. The doctor, the unscrupulous doctor. And uh, for me, the member of the cast I haven't mentioned yet, but who I think gets special mention, uh, Larry Fessenden, uh, who I think gives the best performance of the movie. Uh, and uh, he is himself, in his own right, uh, a, a really good writer-director. And uh, usually when he gets an acting gig, it's one scene and he dies. It happens in at least half a dozen movies I can name that Larry Fessenden shows up for one scene and dies. But no, uh, he and uh, basically shares the lead with this movie with uh, Dominic Monaghan. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think he really nailed it. <laughs> he does an excellent Cockney accent. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to lie, I've seen this sort of character before. Okay. Um, just... Because, as you know, I'm uh, very interested in the Goblins tradition, uh, <laughs> or the Dickensian tradition, I guess, is what maybe more literary types. Oh, ground. <laughs> yes, which basically just involves poor uh, British people whacking each other. Yes. Um, but yeah, he does a great uh, performance in this, even if it's uh, a stereotype that I've <laughs> seen before. And this is a funny movie. Yeah, this it's... Is, <laughs> It's charming. It's also obviously, like I talked about with Phantasm, fairly low budget. Yes. Ambitiously show so. And I think other than a few very obvious CG shots that you just kind of take on the chin, I like the movie enough that I roll with those punches. Mm-hmm. More so than I would argue that I did in, in Phantasm anyway. <laughs> well, in this one, you can actually see the budget or lack of budget showing in some of the performances as well. Um, I'm thinking of uh, John Sparadakos, I think his name. He plays uh, this evil Irishman, right. and he just butchers his accent. <laughs> and it doesn't, instead of coming out threatening like they wanted him to, it just. More comic. Yeah, well, it was just tinned tin to my ears, and I can't imagine what it must have been like for Irish director uh, Glenn McQuaid. <laughs> yeah, that. have to put up with that. Yep. Uh, I love his backstory, though, about his daddy crushing a series of precious items <laughs> until finally one day he's given a rabbit where he kills and eats it himself before daddy can get to it. So there, dad. <laughs> this is the kind of dark imagination that runs throughout the movie. And it's the kind of episodes that happen in the movie as well that you, you can't really expect this huge overarching plot. In fact, you're only about halfway through the movie before... We start even hinting that there's an antagonist yeah. behind the scenes. Um, I liked that there were actually some actual neat scares in this one, too. Uh, there's a scene the very first time they run into the undead, because once again, the idea of the supernatural is... It's just slowly introduced. Yes, yeah. very slowly introduced. <laughs> so, okay, there's undead in this world, we discover... <laughs> When they find a woman and she gets up when she's supposed to be dead, she's been buried at a crossroads, right? Yes. Yes. And I just love the scene where the camera focuses down at her feet and we see her stumbling towards them and then all of a sudden they just lift right off the and ground. drag toward them. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's super creepy. Made the, made the hairs on my uh, neck stand up. There's also a great shot where we... We have a panning camera shot that go from Monaghan to Larry Fessenden, back to Monaghan, back to the empty space where Larry Fessenden has <laughs> run away to... Yes. It was visual gags, sort of winks of uh, Sam Raimi, but a much more restrained uh, sort of... 
hand there. Yeah, we uh, or I mentioned that it's not exactly a period piece either, because I detected that there's world building going on in this, rather than it being set in. Uh, a specific time in the British Isles. At first, I wrote it off because I, uh, uh, you know, stuff like the guillotine. Why would they have a guillotine in right. in England? I thought, well, that's just historically inaccurate. I uh, I actually have a published work um, <laughs> which is on the subject of grave robbing called Rosie's Knife. Anyway, <laughs> so I know a lot a lot about this subject. Uh, looked into it beforehand, and so these inaccuracies, I thought, well, they didn't do their research. But then it becomes apparent on a boat ride over to an island that they're taking when Dominic Monaghan's character starts talking about the fishing village he was in yeah. and the monsters there, that this isn't, this is not our world. This is kind of a much darker world yeah. where people... <laughs> the, the shrieking eels were about to erupt from the water, possibly. <laughs> yeah. And where, but it's also an interesting world in that people seem to be aware of the supernatural but kind of okay with it. But yeah, <laughs> uh, they, they getting what are you gonna do? <laughs> getting terrified by the supernatural dead is uh, just kind of an annoyance, really, <laughs> right? You know, it happens and it's like, oh god, and then you have to hit it with a shovel to make it shut up, right? Uh, yeah, it's it's neat. It's <laughs> I laughed a lot when when you know for instance Larry Fessenden had run away in that scene and he comes back and <laughs> he does come yeah. back to his credit <laughs> <laughs> and whacks the undead woman with the shovel yeah. shovel whacking is one of my favorite ways. <laughs> uh, and I like because they're all that these guys want really is to be able to go to the bar and get drunk at the end of every night that's basically all that they work and live for I mean they're they're drunks um, and most of their best war stories that he's sharing with them are failures, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, the only episode that they sort of win is the one with the vampire because they're able to break free of Angus Scrim by handing him this uh, corpse. There's another great scene where they keep removing the stake out of the woman's chest. And as soon as the stake comes up, she erupts with violence and then they stab her again. And Larry Pesenden seems to be turning her on and off just to amuse himself after a point. Just utterly unfazable. Uh, and how nasty they are about the work. Like, breaking just a small hole in the lid of the coffin and then tying a rope around the body and just winching it out. You hear crunching as the body is being pulled out of the soul. Awful, but hilarious, you know? Yep. I gotta say, I mean, I really... Uh, I love the ambition of this movie. Like, uh, you would think, probably on paper, this would still read like a very big budget production. And uh, he he was able to read in a good cast here. And uh, it, it's produced and distributed by Larry Fessenden's uh, production company, which probably helped him get the part. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Um, but they give good horror movies. They also produced this uh, solid vampire one called Stakeland. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I I'm, I like this movie a lot, and I kind of like that the brand. Um, I'm sorry, Glass Eye Picks is the name of his distribution company, a production company, and uh, he's got a good eye for horror. They managed to do a lot with the obviously small budget, and that. It includes even getting an orchestral score, yeah. which is very impressive because you've got to pay those people. Don't phone it in. And uh, even, well, I guess not really animation, but uh, we go to sort of almost 
comic book stills to people at times. You keep on throwing stuff at you. Uh, and you don't know where you're going to go next. All of a sudden there's a story where they're digging up a frozen coffin. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, a lights in the sky. They have some sort of frozen dead baby alien or something. <laughs> like, all of a sudden the movie turns into Repo Man for a second. <laughs> uh, it is all over the place. And it should be a mess. But I don't think it's a mess. I think it's pretty charming, <laughs> you know? Quite um, charming. It might not necessarily be for everyone. But for genre fans, absolutely. Seek out I Sell the Dead. I think it's totally worth a look. It's also, for all the stuff we're telling you, it's like less than 90 minutes long. I did want to talk a little bit about spoilers. Okay. For this movie, because I wanted to talk about the end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> end of the movie is perfect. Let's continue. <laughs> um, we, we find out that Hellboy, <laughs> um, sorry, Ron Perlman, was the father of the... Uh, <laughs> The Irishman, or the would-be wannabe Irishman who they'd uh, zombified on the island. Mm, he inherited his bad Irish accent from <laughs> his dad, apparently. <laughs> but this was this whole interview was a long subterfuge, so he could torture this man to death as revenge. Um, but lo and behold, Larry Fessenden saves the day, because he himself was bit by a zombie, and just cutting off his head is not going to kill him. And I laugh out loud every time, uh, because his... Inability to be shocked by anything continues. He just <laughs> mutters, I've come off all supernatural. <laughs> it's the best thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> you know what we should do? We should take you to that island and get you a nibble. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of feel bad spoiling that part of the movie, but like, it's. Just that dark humor throughout the movie I love so much. And uh, the fact that, yeah, this it, it almost it's like a mini TV series in itself. You could have, like, episodes of episodes of these two <laughs> bumbling, <laughs> drunken buffoons in their dark misadventures. Because I'd come back for more. I would watch the sequel to this. <laughs> Anything else you want to say about I Saw the Dead? What more can be said? of the creative team of this uh, very interesting movie delicatessen was Jean-Jacques Genel. Um, stateside people would know him for, <clears throat> maybe unfortunately, a Alien Resurrection. Uh, well, you'll see the same protagonist in Delicatessen shows up in that movie. Um, and that's co-written by Joss Whedon. Just, just putting that out there. Not a great movie, but... Um, it's very educational yes podcast um he also you know bounced back went back to his native lands and did this little movie called amelie which a lot of people seem to have uh, embraced uh and he is undeniably talented in a visual in the visual medium and that is obvious in the first few seconds of delicatessen mm -hmm. and one of the amazing things about it is that uh 
their first movie that they wanted to make was a film called The City of Lost Children, which they did end up making subsequent to this. But uh, there was no feasible way for them to afford to do it. This was their low-budget compromise <laughs> that they did instead of the movie they wanted to make. <laughs> it is set in post-apocalyptic France. Yes. And they're... a weird post-apocalyptic France, because it feels like the bombs must have dropped in the 50s or something, right? Like... Well, they, had, they mentioned that there was, this, some, there was this poster that they mentioned very briefly that had a, some kind of a monster on it. And they mentioned <laughs> that they shot one of them down recently, and then one of the other characters calls it a seed-eating bastard. So from what I got from that is that there's some kind of monsters lurking out there in the world that are making agriculture impossible. Yeah, there's no food to be had, is yeah. the main thing, yeah. So, so food is the currency. Yeah. And the action centers on an evil butcher, um, delicatessen owner and landlord. Yeah, he owns the block of apartments above the butcher shop. And he has this recurring scheme that he always does, where he invites a maintenance man to come do work in the building. And then murders him and basically gives sells away the, the meat. meat. Yeah, yeah, sells the meat. So. <laughs> and it's funny. Yes. Because that description makes it sound like this brutal, dark, ugly, hot, awful thing. And that's the thing about this movie. This movie is dark whimsy. <laughs> like uh, a lot of horrible things happen. There's a running gag of a woman who is trying to kill herself. And she keeps on setting up these bizarre, like, Rube Goldberg mechanisms to, uh, you know, somebody will ring the bell, which will cause the sewing machine to sew fabric, which will, you know, pull a lamp off the shelf into the bathtub where she is sitting. Like, <laughs> uh, and all of these scenes are played uh, pretty overtly for humor. Yep. <laughs> um, and the fact that the stakes are that there's, you know, a monster or Lovecraft apocalypse going on outside and that they're living in these hollowed out buildings, uh, they're still sort of polite, normal neighbors and sort of weird love stories going on. Like, we don't necessarily feel the stakes of all this horrible stuff. No, it's just kind of real life. And in this particular existence, people get butchered for meat yes. occasionally. And that's where the action starts off is in... Ex-clown is hired to do maintenance work in this building uh, by the evil butcher, and things look like they're going according to plan until the butcher's daughter falls in love with him. Yeah. You get the feeling like this has happened before. She always pities the <laughs> one that's going to be killed, and watching her father do this again and again, in a way, falling in love with this guy is her way to rebelling against her father. Yes. She weirdly reminded me of a young Hope Davis, if that means anything to you, that actress. Yeah, got uh, nothing. But, um, yeah, I think that the romantic stuff, as charming as it was, was the, the stuff that I was the least interested in. There's a fairly uh, amusing scene where she refuses to wear her glasses for her first date. So she keeps on spilling tea all over the place and bumping into shit. And it's charming and funny, but... Um, I, it's not quite the same scale and spectacle of where we see everything else in the movie. Uh, that was actually one of my main problems with this movie is that uh, it seemed like I was being manipulated by the creators into 
finding all these people quirky and charming and uh, oh look at them they're doing a duet with a cello and a musical a song, song. <laughs> and you know fuck you movie no. I'll decide whether or not this is whimsical oh I think we may disagree here because uh, <laughs> I'm going to say something a little bit uh, controversial okay I think in a lot of ways this movie could be called Cohen-esque As in uh, the sort of hyper-real stylization uh, and characterizations from the actors and the specificity of the props and the sets. The couple that have the two mischievous boys who are always stealing things with fish hooks. There's a scene where he's washing out his prophylactic and you see it's got two seals on it where they've made patches and they have two kids. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Uh, That sort of attention to detail... And uh, the fact that the camera is always slowly panning, or they'll do close-ups, but they're using wide-angle lenses. I don't know. The movie felt very Cohen-y. And the fact that it came out in 91, right around the time the Coens were doing Barton Fink and Miller's Crossing, uh, it, I don't know if they're like... I'm not saying they're emulating the Coens or copying him, but uh, I, it got in my head, and once it did, I couldn't shake it. And for me to compare something to the Coens or to call something Cohen-esque, Yes, that's a fucking compliment. <laughs> yeah. So you were charmed by it, basically, then? Uh, overall, yes. I, and I was also blown away by the production value. Like, uh, the fact that this was considered a low-budget movie, when, you know, they do the elaborate escape that involves flooding half of the building. <laughs> uh, it's really well rendered and realized, you know? Well, I can't explain it. Uh, what this movie seemed to me, for me... It seemed like a movie filled with really great ideas. Let's take, for example, the the troglos. Yeah, the underground dwellers who only eat uh, veg or like beans and seeds. They They're these paramilitary guys who are obsessed with food. <laughs> And they are hilarious when they're on screen. They're dressed all in uh, black rubber, and it's you know. They remind me <laughs> of like the Time Bandits from a from a Terry Gilliam. Movie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and they're this is an idea which I really like. And when I was watching it, I thought to myself, you know, this seems like it should be really, really funny. But for some reason, it left me cold, kind of like everything else in the movie. Oh, wow. I laughed out loud a few times, but for the most part, I just kind of had a weird... I had a smile on my face. I was charmed by it. Mm-hmm. Um, like I say, the, the romantic angles I were the, were the times where I kind of felt my butt getting sore in my seat a little bit. But I, there was usually a payoff to come soon, you know? Uh, a fight with a meat cleaver on a rooftop or... Mm-hmm. <laughs> again... Uh, I found the characters in the building fairly colorful. I mean, it is definitely that exaggerated world that we see in the Coen Brothers or in Wes Anderson films. And I have to, I guess, confess that I must have a predisposition for liking this sort of hyper-real approach because it works for me with the Coens and Wes Anderson and it's working for me here. (laughs) There were some pretty good performances in it. Um, And I'm thinking... I, I liked Dominique Pinot. I think he was the main character. He does some actual... Very good clowning performances in it. That you get the feeling he's like the real deal. He yeah. was the real deal, um, and for some reason, I got the uh, I got the feeling that 
Karen VR, I think her, na- her name is. She plays the sultry woman. Yes. Uh, has a lot of acting chops that weren't necessarily in use, but just the way that uh, she shouted at the troglos, Nailda! <laughs> that I, I really enjoyed that. <laughs> I love that scene, actually, when they go to race to back the rescue, and it, she thinks for a moment that she's being abandoned by them, and she starts weeping. <laughs> she's like, she's rolled up in a carpet in a sewer. All these guys realize that, that you know, she wasn't who they'd been looking for, and then they just run away, and she's alone in the sewer, and she starts to cry, and one of them runs back, cuts her free, and gives her a quick smooch, and he says to her, just in case I don't come back, and then scampers away. <laughs> because the troggles are, are very, very um, intense. Yes. <laughs> they seem to have like a lot of pent-up energy. I don't know if the fumes in the sewers are getting to them or what, but again, like, they made me smile, like a lot of things in the movie. Um. <laughs> the end. Yes. The end uh, didn't sit very well for me. No. Well, just in that, okay, so the main action of the story has been resolved. Yes, the evil butcher is dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, half and, the building is destroyed. Yes, <laughs> half the building has been flooded and exploded, and <laughs> the floors are missing. I don't know if they get to end it on a happy note because the building has no more food the troglos took all of it (laughs) and it's what's holding it together that you don't get to have the main characters go up on the roof and play another duet and have it be a happy ending i guess i didn't think about it as deeply as that but the as the butcher says repeatedly to his daughter you wouldn't last weeks out there and she is charming and whimsical much like this clown but uh, uh that's probably a true statement but the other thing is we don't see the world outside this building, really. It's very contained in there. I think that's what it was. They got a hold of this building, and that was their main set, and they just pr- produced the hell out of that one location. Uh, we weren't able to see the bigger worlds, but he is he earned after this the right to show those bigger worlds. Mm, um, yes. I will agree with you that I think that he is a much more aesthetically uh, in- impressive director than he is to me as a writer. I don't know if this is entirely because of things that are lost in translation. I was just mentioned that Delicate is directed by two people. He had a creative partner at the time, and I'll splice in the name when I can pronounce it. <laughs> um, uh, they made this movie together, but I'm talking here mainly about Jean-Jacques He Visually, his movies are always like worth looking at, even if you got the sound off. The scripts, I find, can sometimes give me cavities. They're a little Disney. Um, and this one didn't feel Disney to me. Did to me. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, anything else you want to say? I want me to go to Las Vegas at once. As your attorney, I advise you to rent a very fast car with no top. Tape recorder for special music. Get the hell out of LA for at least 48 hours. We're all set. If I could just get, get you John Hancock, you're on your way. Yeah. Listen, you're going to be real careful with this car, right? Oh, yeah, man. <laughs> We can't stop here. This is bat country. Hot <laughs> damn, I've never rode in a convertible before. Get out. Is this not a reasonable place to park? Reasonable? You're on a sidewalk! Higher! 
What's the score here? Lucy paints. Um, Terry Gilliam is kind of a an interesting filmmaker. Uh, I kind of think he may be a love or hate kind of guy. Um, you don't necessarily love all of his movies, but uh, people really react strongly to them. <laughs> um, I think the same could be said about his subject here, Hunter S. Thompson. He, you know, makes his fame basically being a difficult delinquent who can write really well. And in spite of the fact that he, you know, comes off like a maniac, is also quite intelligent and often right in his writing. This is one of these, like, almost unadaptable sort of books. It's like stream of consciousness writing. <laughs> um, and uh, I think... A lot of people were resistant to it. That the experience of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas should be that of reading the book. But Terry Gilliam took the reins of it. And I think he did a pretty fantastic job of visualizing the book in lots of creative and different ways. I don't necessarily he made it accessible to anybody who wasn't of the Hunter S. Thompson world. But he did the book justice. And uh, I think that's the highest praise that I can put on it. I don't know who else could have made this movie. The plot, such as it is, Hunter S. Thompson is hired to do a story on a... Raul Duke, actually. Well, yes, Raul Duke. <laughs> um, he's hired to do a story on a race that's happening in uh, Las Vegas. The Mint 400. Yeah. And uh, he fills the car full of drugs and he gets his lawyer slash worst influence uh played by Benicia del Toro the, the sort of famous Dr. Gonzo figure from Hunter S. Thompson's writings another character who is at once mad but working for the good <laughs> um and both Johnny Depp and Benicia del Toro just give ferocious performances here it's also interesting because in this movie you can see a uh, younger Johnny Depp playing an older Hunter S. Thompson and you can now also see Rum Diary, which has an older Johnny Depp playing a younger Hunter S. Thompson. Strange. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, all that intro aside, uh, I remember reading a review by the late, great Roger Ebert. It was a half a star review for Fear and Loathing Las Vegas. And I remember this line. He said, it's one note repeated tunelessly for over two hours. <laughs> he's right about that, but he's also wrong. Yeah, I, well, that's that's where I put the ball in your court, brother. Mm, well, I have to say that this movie is actually part of a little tradition of mine. Once uh, every couple of years or something like that, if I have some time alone, I will get stinking drunk <laughs> and watch Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Nice. And it really makes the movie better in a lot of ways <laughs> because you stop worrying about plot and whatnot and scenes don't really matter if they don't string together logically and so it was interesting to watch it without the booze in my <laughs> system i have to say right. um, and sadly not as good um, and i see what roger ebert is talking about saying that it, it's one note played over and over again it's like the movie is raving at the audience for however many minutes this is mm -hmm. and it's just non-stop but that's also kind of the point of it. <laughs> it's how the book is, too. It reads really fast, and it's a um, stream of consciousness. 
And he tries to give you that experience. He, he tries as much as possible to give you the experience of being drunk or stoned or whatever, being in the Hunter S. Thompson head, but he tries to give you that with the movie. I saw this for the first time on the big screen. And I think especially seeing it on the big screen, like, you didn't need to be stunk or droned, right? Like, <laughs> the, the movie kind of messes you up. It does. And deliberately so. And that that's what he set out to do and that he achieves it. I have to give a huge, big, overhand high five to Terry Gilliam. Um, and I'm a fan, but he does not always knock it out of the park. There are some stinkers in his reservoir. And so, mm-hmm. um, but I don't think this is one of them. And uh, I got I to give huge props to, again, the cast. Uh, uh, Johnny Depp and, and Benicio Del Toro obviously take up the bulk of it but throughout the movie you see cameos from people you don't expect who do good work you know now uh johnny depp was a friend of hunter s thompson knew him for a while yeah um so that just makes me wonder i don't have i've not seen a whole lot of video of hunter s thompson uh it almost seemed like johnny depp was doing an impersonation rather than a, a performance um and I don't think that is a good thing in particular. Um, well, and I, I think the fact that he knows him, Hunter S. Thompson saw the movie and was okay with it. In fact, Hunter S. Thompson himself is in the movie very briefly. Yes. <laughs> it's one of the cameos I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, if Hunter S. Thompson gives him a pass, I feel like I have to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, um, it it kind of took me took me away from, from the movie, honestly. Just, yeah, it seemed like a a parody of Hunter S. Thompson. I think that the, the man would be probably a problematic person to have a conversation with. I would love to read his book, but it would probably be hell to have a beer with him, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the movie's honest about that, but it's also honest about his talent. The, the, this sort of madness in him is also sort of fueled by an intelligence, and uh, uh, when he is able to clear his head and sit down in front of the typewriter, amazing shit happens. <laughs> yes, uh, and I'll actually quote directly from this movie because this was actually a moment of profundity in the midst of this madness that I really appreciated. So, you know, it's not all uh, just raving. It's this really famous line about San Francisco in the 1960s and it's edited only slightly. And that, I think, was the handle. The sense of inevitable victory over the forces of old and evil. Not in any mean or military sense. We didn't need that. Our energy would simply prevail. We had all the momentum. We were riding the crest of a high and beautiful wave. So now, less than five years later, you can go up on a steep hill in Las Vegas and look west. And with the right kind of eyes, you can almost see the high water mark. That place where the wave finally broke and rolled back. Beautiful. I came out of, like, this raving lunatic. Yes. (laughs) A man who, you know, in his declining years, I believe, was being interviewed. And uh, if I uh, asked the interviewer if he wanted to go shoot at gas cylinders, yes. right? Yeah. <laughs> There's a story that, yeah, Johnny Depp had uh, his girlfriend or wife over at the man's house. And he handed Johnny Depp some, Depp some C4 and told him to go put it on this propane tank at the other end of the yard. Yes. And the two took turns shooting at it until it exploded, and this woman left just horrified. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, they're, not, they're not amping this for the sake of a movie. Like, I think that as crazy as it is, 
the characterization of Andres Thompson is probably not far off the mark. Mm-hmm. The wild card is the Benicio del Toro character, and uh, he's the real Venom. I mean, if, if you look at it like as the devil and angel, you know, uh, the fact that the you know, Hunter S. Thompson is the angel right there is like it's a dark fucking angel, right? But the devil, represented by uh, Benicio del Toro, sort of, uh, he's a lawyer and he fights good civil rights cases. And if you read other material, in like, uh, he's a fascinating character in himself. But Oscar Zeta Acosta is the name you. of the character he's uh, based on. Um, but he's also just this terrible monster. There's a horrifying scene where he's just utterly like horrifying Ellen Barkin uh, in, in a restaurant mm-hmm. for no reason. Yeah. But it's not just him being the devil, though. It seems like in the movie they actually, the two characters, trade off taking care of uh, one another. One another. Yeah. But that still doesn't rule out the fact that they're not completely lucid and will say something completely unexpected. Like, <laughs> we know what you're up to, man. And it's kind of frightening when that happens. <laughs> when, the one who's, when the one who's looking after the other isn't, isn't all there. Yeah. And it's also... Uh, I don't necessarily think it's a pro-drug movie. Some people sort of accuse it as being because there's a scene where I think they're drinking mescaline and they're describing that experience where they, they can barely move or talk but everybody thinks they're drunk and they get pushed through these turnstiles into the circus place. The ether. Yeah, yeah, ether. They're on mm-hmm. ether. That's right. Um, and my, like... That did not make me want to eat there. And it, like, and it seemed like they were trying to fuck themselves up. Like they were getting messed up on all these chemicals and then going to like the scariest place possible. <laughs> like, <laughs> really, really a terrifying visit to Circus Circus in Las Vegas. And it's an ordeal for them and consequently an ordeal for us, you know? So many strange scenes. Uh, uh, Michael Jeter in... Uh, this really small cameo role is a guy giving a speech to a bunch of cops uh, talking about uh, marijuana users being recognizable by the stains on their clothes from constantly jacking off when they can't find rape victims. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the movie just keeps on throwing bizarre shit at you. Uh, and uh, I, 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 it is relentless. I won't say otherwise. But I do find it fascinating and entertaining. And... Uh, is it for everyone? No, but it certainly belongs in a what the fuck category. And both Terry Gilliam and Hunter S. Thompson are originals, so mm-hmm. that collision, I think, is something to be treasured. The ending is a little bit cold. I I can understand, you know, after. Um, where is this? Where is this all led us? To? Yes, Raul Duke has dropped off Doctor Gonzo at the airport, and is now driving away to the sounds of Jumpin' Jack Flash. Yeah. What have they learned? Yeah. They they didn't exactly find the American dream, which they were setting out to do. Because he wrote the story. He wrote the story, which, <laughs> as I recall, the magazine that originally paid him to do it didn't want. <laughs> he had to have it published in Rolling Stone. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but I think that if you're hiring Hunter S. Thompson, you're paying for Hunter S. Thompson, I think the subject becomes immaterial after a point. But... Uh, yeah. I don't know. I gotta say, I'm a big fan of the movie. Um, and I was sort of puzzled by the fact that 
I understand why I didn't light up the box office, like the people weren't lining up around the block to see it, but I, I am kind of shocked that, you know, it was so critically spanked because I, I think that it's so obvious in every second of this film that a really talented filmmaker is here and that uh, Johnny Depp and Benicio Toro really committed to playing this depravity. They weren't cared about you liking them. They were trying to give you the book. Yep. And I think they did as close a job as you could have. Well, this movie really skirts the line of being uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And people's tolerance uh, just doesn't go this far, is the only thing I can say. Roger Ebert was not prepared <laughs> to be this uncomfortable watching a movie. This is not one you bring home to Grams, right? <laughs> you, know, you know, maybe not watching this with Mom. But um, if you're interested in Terry Gilliam or Hunter S. Thompson, I mean, it feels like a lock to me, but... Uh... I've been wrong before, I'll be wrong again. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you're really worried about it, uh, bring a six-pack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it is time for a surgical strike. Fascist pigs! I'm a pimp, and pimps don't commit suicide. Southland Tales. It premieres at the Cannes Film Festival and it's over three hours long and it's considered one of the most reviled screenings ever in Cannes history. It landed with a resounding thud and the outcry of hate afterwards was was pretty loud. So he cut about 45 minutes out of it and then it was quietly released in theaters over a year later to no response. Was it too smart for the public? Did Khan not get it? Did the audience not get it? There are ardent defenders of this movie. If you look at, you know, and you look it up on the internet, there are people who will rage against it, but there are people who will tell you it is brilliant. Well, let me put it this way. I think this is the best way it can be explained. Watching Southland Tales is like watching a grown-up movie when you're a kid. <laughs> it's incomprehensible and boring unless somebody is explaining what's happening to you. And there is probably a code that somebody could give you a commentary track or a blow-by-blow. Blow. That's what that character comes from. This is what this means. But it's a mess of a movie. And I just, I can't sugarcoat it. I've, I've mentioned it a couple times in the podcast before as an example of how not to world build. Because... Obviously, you need to world build, especially in science fiction films, but at some point you have to start telling the story. And this movie just jumps around from disparate location to location, showing us this world. About and the first 40 minutes of the movie, no character says anything that isn't expository dialogue. But we, we haven't really even anchored with our protagonist yet. No. It, it's a series of seemingly unrelated events that we are all to take in on trust. <laughs> and apparently, if you read the series of uh, graphic novels that this is uh, in, based on, uh, a lot of things come to the light. But they do nothing 
to help you with this. And it seems weird because I complain in the past about I don't like being spoon-fed by movies, but you gotta give me something. <laughs> you gotta give me something. And uh, my expectations were high. Like I said, I was a Richard Kelly fan, and I will still defend uh, Donnie Darko. But I don't get this movie. This movie I find frustrating. <laughs> and like, It's one of those things. Like, Maybe I can see that there's a good movie in this somewhere, but I think he like didn't even cut enough. <laughs> maybe this is a brilliant 80-minute movie, or maybe it needed the three hours. But Southland Tales, as I hold it in my hand at the still uncomfortably long 144 minutes, is... Uh, it's a trial. It's a trial. It's the futuristic world of 2008. <laughs> and... A terrorist nuke has been detonated in North Texas. Was it North Texas? I can't. Anyway, the Republican government has introduced lots of uh, anti-democratic measures to deal with this. And meanwhile, the neo-Marxist movement has sprung up in California, which is a swing state and in the middle of an election. And the Californian uh, candidate for the Republican Party is a man named Boxer Santeros, who the neo-Marxists are trying to frame in a fake shooting. Mm -hmm. And that's the basic setup. Oh, yes, and there's also a source of limitless energy that is harnessed through the ocean's tides, which is destabilizing America. And our amnesiac uh, movie star. Yes. Partnering with a police officer to, quote, learn the ropes. As that sort of enters in the story and twinning and also the end of the world. Okay, okay, hold on. We could go on. Yeah. We could go on at length about All following these... Little cars th fuck each other. Yes. These, <laughs> these different plot threads, these different ideas... <laughs> We couldn't talk about all the characters without monopolizing. About all of the time. Yeah, we, and we can't do that. So we're just going to say it's very episodic. <laughs> Everything is kind of linked together, but we're not given enough information to go by. Yeah. It's a series of events. It's not a story, and it's a long series of events full of, cool, of, of some interesting faces. Uh, I was saying this is the first time that... Dwayne Johnson dropped the rock moniker, and he was, I'm a serious actor, I'm Dwayne Johnson, and this is a movie, and uh, I think he's okay, and he's definitely come a long way since this movie, but he's got one note that he plays in this movie a lot, which is, I don't know what's going on, and I'm going to bounce my fingers together. Evil, evil villain finger twiddling. Yeah, and uh, it, it, there's a repetition to it, you know. Um, okay, he's given some lines, too. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to repeat some of these because this is the kind of shit that you're thrown at with this movie. Yeah. Um, just when it seems like, uh, just when it seems like some sort of dramatic tension is building, something utterly bizarre will come out of nowhere and spoil it all by making you laugh. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, Dwayne Johnson is with this serpentine woman. Serpentine says. Two identical souls walking the face of the earth, coexisting in the same dominion of chaos. What will happen if they shake hands? And Boxer Santero says, The fourth dimension would collapse upon itself, you stupid bitch. And then he kisses her. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, stunning. Stunning. Okay, he's also the first person to deliver the line, 
I'm a pimp, and pimps don't commit suicide. Oh, that drives me crazy. The last half an hour, that bell is rung over and over again, and at no point does it become or approach profound. I don't understand what is being said there. And they keep coming back to it. Like, they really, when he wrote that line, he was like, fucking <laughs> nailed it. <laughs> but it doesn't make any sense. My point is with Dwayne Johnson is I think a really experienced actor... Would still be lost here. ...would have a lot of trouble with this role. I read an interview with uh, Wallace Shawn. Mm-hmm. He is a small part in this movie, and uh, they asked him about this movie. And he said, well, he met with the director, and he was really impressed by him. He really liked Ani Darko. He read the script, didn't understand it, but he sort of did it on trust. He says he's watched the movie two, uh, two times since then, he still doesn't understand it, but he likes it and doesn't regret it. <laughs> but same thing, uh, John Lovitz. I heard John Lovitz talk about this movie. It's like it's the first time I ever did a movie where I uh, had no idea where my role fit in it or if it made sense to the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, you also get the feeling like Richard Kelly loves Saturday Night Live. Half the movie is populated with alumni from Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. Or comedians. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, you know, there are some positive things about this movie. Uh, John Lovett's performance being one Surprisingly of them. one of them. I think this may be the high watermark for John Lovett's. <laughs> yeah, he, he plays this evil cop, and this performance just treads so finely that line between uh, comic and uh, horrifying. I could never laugh at him, though. There was something he's kept the face straight. Like, I almost mm-hmm. bought it, and... Uh, I, I never thought I could, you know, not, not laugh at John Lovett, <laughs> yeah. if that makes sense. Also, I liked the conceit of the movie being narrated by a sniper sitting in his sniper tower who can see everything. Right. That's a neat idea. And when I think about little details of the movie, I think to myself, well, there's that, and that's pretty neat, and there's that, and that's pretty neat. But then I have to remember, bring myself back to reality, there was also... A bunch of shit moments yeah. that didn't make any sense. Well, you're and right, though. There's isolated moments that kind of ring really strongly. Yeah. Like, I don't necessarily think that Richard Kelly's unta- untalented, but uh, I think that maybe he needs someone to write with him. <laughs> or, uh, <laughs> like, visually, he's fairly strong, too, is the thing. Like, the movie looks nice, and uh, the future he's trying to tell us is realized as well as possible. It's just. It's a well of ideas that don't... There's probably ten movies worth of ideas there. You know, you've got to pick a road at some mm-hmm. point. So many ideas, and that's one of the things that drags it down. But also one of the things that dragged it down for me, too, is the preachiness of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it lacks subtlety, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's basically, I guess, has a rebel philosophy, and... Definitely, you can see it being made in the Bush era, mm-hmm. when there was a lot of concern about what Bush was doing to civil liberties. I was one of those people that thought that as well, and still continue to think it. So then, when I see my ideas in this movie presented in such a heavy-handed fashion, I kind of blush. Seems like they're undervalued. Yeah. yeah, it makes me embarrassed that that they're presented in this way. So. Strange, strange highlights. Like I said, um, I, I'm I'm not gonna give too much shit about spoilers for this movie. Sean William Scott sh- shakes hands with himself, and the world ends. And there's a lot of uh, Christ imagery. Um, 
But there's there's something weirdly powerful about the scene with this ridiculous as it is of this ice cream truck lifting up in the air and these two guys sort of staring each other down and trying to just experience whatever this weird thing is. They are accidentally undoing the universe and whether or not they realize it, there's something weirdly powerful about the moment. But, you know, the guy on top of the truck firing the bazooka and then, you know, taking the cross dance and diving off almost made me chortle. Yep. And, uh... <laughs> almost. <laughs> and then, I'm not a musical fan. We talked about in, uh, the last time we did the podcast, the musical horror podcast show, that as a rule, it's not my genre. There's a musical number. They got Justin Timberlake, so let's have a musical number. And when it happened... I was thrilled by the injection of energy into the movie. <laughs> you know what? Like, it had nothing to do with anything that came before it, nothing that came to anything after it, but those three minutes, I was entertained by a music video. <laughs> uh, I didn't have such a similar reaction. I, I really dislike it in movies when a musical number comes in unexpectedly and... Yeah, this was just yet another what-the-fuck moment. And it wasn't written <laughs> off as a dream sequence either. You just have to keep taking what you're being fed in this movie. <laughs> it was a drug trip, wasn't it? Maybe. Yeah. Well. All right. Well, uh, Sarah Michelle Gellar is a celebrity porn star, sort of the future Paris Hilton. She was really uncomfortable in that role, I thought. Yeah, and what was the song that she had to sing? There's this really humiliating song that she had in the movie. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> I felt bad for Buffy, I gotta say. And I can understand, you know, when the movie came out, yeah, the director of Donnie Darko wants to talk to you about doing his next movie. Like, I'm in. Yeah, I understand making that. But, you know, but shit, read the script, girl. <laughs> and uh, I think that a lot of the people, and like I said, there's a sea of familiar faces, the people I like that you don't even see often. John Larroquette, for Christ's sake. But to what end? <laughs> To what end, indeed? It's it's too preachy to be an absurdist masterpiece. So it fails in that sense. It makes too much sense. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> but it also doesn't make enough sense. My nose is bleeding. <laughs> My head hurts. And like Donnie Darko was a very challenging movie, and I didn't. I probably don't understand every corner of it, but I still got a lot out of it. There was still a story there. There was a beginning and a middle and an end. And uh, we get none of that here. It's frustrating. <laughs> it's it's a dental appointment. A 144-minute dental appointment for me. It's like the, it's full of talent. It's brimming with talent, and it sucks. Uh, well, <laughs> it has a lot of great unintentional laughs in it, though. Like, too long even for like a so-bad-it's-good, though. I don't know. <laughs> no, I can't say it's a so-bad-it's-good either, but... There's so many lines of dialogue in it. Like, uh, okay, I'm going to just throw another one out here. Go. So many lines of dialogue. Okay, we're coming right to the end of the movie. And the action is ramping up. It looks like, you know, things are, the world is going to end. I can't, and the the ice cream truck is levitating (laughs) for some reason. And then for some reason, the announcer on board the Mega Blimp says, Ladies and gentlemen, this is the way the world ends. Not, Not with, with a whimper, whimper, but with a bang. But there is hope. In the end, we can be reassured by one undeniable truth. Nobody rocks the cock like Krista now. And I mean nobody. Like Krista now is Sarah Michelle Gellar's character. Yes. And 
what's the point of that line? Was that... Were we it's supposed just programmed to... to do that in case of a disaster, I guess. <laughs> um, the beginning of it is actual song lyrics. In fact, the movie is devised into, or sliced into several chapters, each of which has a heading, which is a quote from a different song. Hmm. Um, one's Moby, one's the Pixies, and uh, I can't remember the other. But uh, uh, again, a lot of talented musicians, some cool music in the movie too, but again, it's a mess. It's a blender. It's like a kid who just went into the refrigerator and put everything into the blender. <laughs> yeah. And then, hey, Mom, Dad, I had soup, and you have to be polite, and you have to eat the soup, because... You know. <laughs> When I started writing Naked Lunch, people offered their opinions. Disgusting, they said. Pornographic, un-American trash, unpublishable. Well, it came out in 1959, and it found an audience. Town meetings, book burnings, and an inquiry by the state Supreme Court. That book made quite a little impression. Now, 30 years later, Hollywood, in its infinite wisdom, has turned it into a movie. 30 feet tall, in living color. I'm starting to feel madness. <laughs> You're starting to feel it sinking. Yeah. <laughs> it might be because it's late at night. Or it might be because we're talking about crazy movies, but my my mind is feeling disordered and jumbled. Yeah. Uh, you said when you asked if you had a specific order you wanted to list these movies in, that you were going to put it in order from the least crazy to the most. Yes. Now, uh, I think in my assessment of these movies, I, I might have put it in a slightly different order, but I am fascinated that, that the last movie, and therefore the craziest movie we're going to discuss is Naked Lunch. Uh, the text on which this David Cronenberg film is based on was written, uh, again, in a state of drug-addled lunacy. And uh, famously, it was a bunch of disjointed pages and scraps that basically was cobbled together into this book that was called Naked Lunch. But it was just sort of a series of weird stories that all had weird interzone bug themes and sort of a perverse examination of sexuality and uh another it, movie that uh was said to be unfilmable as yeah well. <clears throat> uh basically uh, this guy who is essentially william s burroughs uh, played by peter weller and his wife become addicted to the pesticides that he uses in his job to to kill bugs and the hallucinations that they cause and the behavior generally that they cause has all sorts of horrible, horrible consequences. Um, and yeah, it gets into this netherworld and interzone and uh, what what is real, what is not, what is a hallucination. <laughs> and uh, it's definitely right up the alley as far as Cronenberg, who's all about body horror and icky, uncomfortable science fiction. And uh, I, I like to support our Canadian born and, uh, you know, I have a difficult relationship with Cronenberg. I want to like Cronenberg more than I do, and uh, I find I have been warming to him over time. But uh, generally speaking, I'm 
a little bit at arm's reach. I find his movies cold. <laughs> wow, um, this is definitely the grossest movie I've ever watched. Yeah. Another first. <laughs> You're uh, welcome. Yeah. <laughs> You'd never seen this before, I assume. Never <laughs> seen it before. And uh, I was curious about it, of course. But it's not just the bug and, bugs and the slime and the, the humpy butt typewriters that make this a gross movie. <laughs> it's also just... The general sense of spiritual disease, uh, disease and unwholesomeness yeah. that adds to that—it's um, a fever dream, and uh, um, uh, an even less pleasant one, I would say, than *Fear and Loathing* in Las Vegas. Like, uh, whereas *Fear and Loathing* is sort of this bizarre, bizarre *Fear and Loathing* is this bizarre, perverse spectacle. This one's much more grittier. This is sort of a like slimy, scummy. You know, I don't know if you can't find the right word, but there's something scuzzy about the whole experience of the movie. I think deliberately so, but um, this emotional detachment really keeps me detached from the movie, which is surprising when you consider the supporting cast uh, has three people that I absolutely love. Judy Davis, Ian Holm, and Roy Scheider. I, 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 I like all, like love all three of those actors. I figure if they're in your movie, your movie's already a B plus just because they're gonna <laughs> act the shit out of it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I, I I felt like they were everybody had almost a gag in their mouth. Everybody was sort of soft in the movie, and the real stars of the show were sort of the interzone, the bug, the creatures, the weird anus typewriter, <laughs> and like uh, these crazy hallucinations and prolonged scenes of Peter Weller talking to these insects. What I do like about the movie is Peter Weller's performance, actually. He gives a very, very deadpan performance through most of the movie. And this adds some comedy to it in a lot of scenes, but it also grounds it a little bit more mm-hmm. because there's insane shit going on around him all the time. And to just have a character that is unfazed by most of it is a little bit of a relief. Oh, that's interesting. For me, I think like Peter Weller felt like appropriate casting in that he's very skinny and very gaunt. But as an actor, I've never been knocked over by, by, by the man. Um, I know he takes it very seriously. Like He worked with them line when he got the part in RoboCop. And, you know, he, he does his homework. You know, he's not awful, but I'm always looking at Peter Weller and it's always sort of this monotone, sort of serious delivery. It's he's he's solid and dependable. You cast him in the right role. He looks the part and he's adequate here. But I wasn't. I, I have to say I wasn't bowled over by it. Uh, but again, he was surrounded by like Ian Holm and, and Judy Davis. Well, I'm not saying that he uh, gave an amazing performance either. I'm just saying he was perfect for the for role. For the role, yeah. um, he was appropriate. Yeah. And actually, I had real problems with Judy Davis in this yeah. movie as well. I found her uniquely uncharismatic, <laughs> and the fact that. Uh, the the protagonist is trying to attain her for most of the movie. Just, just. You don't understand. It didn't the understand it. But do you understand his appeal? Kind of. Yeah. Yeah. I guess he can write. I one of the things I liked about it was it's um, being set in a kind of film noir idiom mm-hmm. and. He looked the part of a of a gumshoe yeah. from a, a movie in that era. So, I guess I had some residual feelings for that role. Right. 
But the fact that he was walking in a, in a cloud of bug spray or whatever the shit that was. Um, and this is all have echoes of, you know, the real world. William S. Burroughs did uh, shoot a woman in a... He shot scenario. his wife. He shot his wife in a scenario not di- too different than it is depicted in this movie. It's almost like the approach to this is similar to a Steven Soderbergh movie, Kafka, where they didn't do a Kafka story, but they put the man Kafka himself in a Kafka-like story. Yeah. And, so, and that seems to be what they're doing with William S. Burroughs. They're putting William S. Burroughs in his book. <laughs> Without having read uh, Naked Lunch myself, I did look at the synopsis, and it seems dissimilar. Yeah. For, to the well, there's structure and story to it, so it, it's got that over the book. <laughs> yeah. Um, so the movie is rife with symbols, obviously, and mm-hmm. so just, and ugly sexuality. Let's be real. <laughs> yeah. Um, so here's some of the big ones here. Um, so Interzone. This movie seems to be about uh, the writing process. And the interzone seems to be the place where William S. Burroughs, or I guess Will, in this book, Bill has to go mm-hmm. in order to write. Um, and it's about the writing process. I can identify with that. You do kind of have to remove yourself from your body in order to write. Get in your found. place. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, our hero, I guess, has to take lots and lots of hard drugs in order to do that. There's a lot of authors like this in the mid 20th century that are drugged celebrated. out, <laughs> drugged out, or difficult people to work with. They're tough guys, and uh, yeah, it's always a difficult thing, you know. They say <clears throat> never meet your heroes, and it's always sucks you know, find a really good writer, but he turns out like they're also arrogant pricks, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. Here's another one here. So we, we know that uh, Bill kills his wife. Yes. He does it twice in the movie. Yes. Once near the uh, beginning, which is the beginning of his journey to Interzone. And that makes sense with the comment with William S. Burroughs said, which is, it was the death of my wife that put me on the road to being a writer. Right. He basically is trying to attain her for the course of the movie. And then at the end, He's driving to a place called Anexia, and in order to prove that he's a writer, he kills his wife again. <laughs> and then the, the guards outside of Anexia say, Welcome to Anexia. Okay, so first of all, what's Anexia? Is it the real world? Is he going back to the real world? Or, but why did, because he went to the real world before, and he didn't need to go by these border guards. Yeah. Does it mean that he's killing his wife over and over again every time he writes? What is the symbolism there? Do you have answers? Because <laughs> I, I don't wish, know. I wish I could help you. For me, my interpretation was a little bit different uh, because I, I guess I have a little bit more background on Burroughs, at least towards the end of his life, too. But he was, you know, a, a junkie and um, uh, a sort of out homosexual when it wasn't cool to be that. And I saw a lot of his escaping to this other world to sort of be nudging that. And especially the very, very almost H.R. Geiger kind of sexualized approach to some of the creatures that he talked to. Um, These were all like horrible monsters, but they were all sort of, I don't know, representing something he either needed either for creativity or that he was guilty, you know, that he, he was attracted to something that was monstrous in his mind. Uh, that's that's where I went with it. <laughs> but uh, I, I was just... 
I was trying to, to meet him halfway. <laughs> well, uh, that's why I'm grasping for these ideas, because if this is a movie about the writing process, yeah. then I would like to make some sense of it. What, what is the, the deal with all those writers that he had met in Interzone? Um, slurping off of captive mugwump aliens like they're addicted. That's where the best creative juice is coming from, off of the back of these interdimensional bug creatures. <laughs> yeah, so what does it mean? <laughs> is it... What does it mean, indeed? And I think it's weird to take a book like Naked Lunch and use it as a, you know, a, a treatise about writing itself. Maybe that's in the book deliberately or not, but... Um, like I say, the book was cobbled together, and it was sort of... It's almost like a collection of unrelated short stories, but Interzone is mentioned again. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it doesn't have a beginning, middle, and end. It's not sort of any kind of classic story structure. So uh, to use William S. Burroughs as an example of your typical writer is, you know weird i think that's a strange approach i think uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> for me and again maybe i'm just biased because i i just think that fear and loathing is the better film of it try to get I, I wanted to get in his head and this movie wasn't letting me <laughs> i can see that um and you know we were as we were in the heads of our characters in fear and loathing whether we wanted to be or not <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, this is one of those movies, again, I don't think it's a complete write-off necessarily, but it's a movie that I want to like more than I do. <laughs> I had real issues with this movie. Uh, just in, I mean, both this and Fear and Loathing are about bad trips, Yeah. but this one really hit me. And for about four hours after I saw this movie, I felt uneasy and unhappy. And I was stumbling around my house, and it took a lot of time unburdening my thoughts about this movie with well, my wife in order to dispel this feeling. Wow. Well, I gotta say that 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 has got to be points forward in some way that it definitely left an impression. Well, yeah. I can't say I, <laughs> you sound like you were rattled by it. I, I was more perplexed. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, I, I didn't invest that emotionally because I didn't feel like I was being allowed to. Yeah. Well, yeah, it congratulations on making me feel something, but <laughs> yeah. I just didn't like the feeling. Yeah. Um so ain't ain't gonna rank too high for old Jerry. <laughs> reliving these movies over the last hour or something. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> yeah, that, that really is a messed up list. And I think watching them in close close together, I remember saying something similar about torture porn. I mean, I recommend a lot of these movies, but I don't recommend you watching them all in a really short time frame. <laughs> anyway, the time has come uh, for you to rank these six what-the-fuck originals, and I am curious to see where we ended up. It sounds like it's going to be a different list. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to win one of these days. <laughs> All right. At number six, The Naked Lunch. Or no, just Naked Lunch. Naked Lunch. Just Naked Lunch. And the reason why I mentioned earlier, it made me violently ill afterwards. And 
that's I don't mean to laugh at your misery. I apologize. <laughs> that is my fault. I'm willing to say that this is my fault that I can't enjoy the movie. It was my own personal um, issues that prevented me from enjoying it. Maybe out there there are very intellectual, atavistic people <laughs> that would get a kick out of this movie, but it's not for me. Uh, next is Southland Tales, for just being too, having too many ideas, being incomprehensible. Um, Delicatessen is at number four, because as I mentioned earlier, it left me feeling cold, um, and I just was not involved in it. Uh, number three is Phantasm. Um, which could have been better with maybe a bigger budget and more experience. I love the ideas in Phantasm, but there's just too many clunky bits. Yeah. Uh, number two is I Sell the Dead. Uh, I, and once again, here's another example of a, a low-budget movie, but I enjoyed it. Uh, just made me want to give everyone involved a pat on the back, yeah. even the guys that butchered their Irish accents. And then number one, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> would I recommend Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas to everyone I meet? Mm. No. Mm-hmm. No, but I think it's the superior of these what-the-fuck films, um, just in terms of it being a fun experience. It also seems the one that most successfully, to me anyway, fucks me up <laughs> like the movie does feel disorienting especially like i said the big screen experience of it but like yeah it really it takes you for that ride i'm sorry brother we're not gonna match again i uh it's a tough old world <laughs> but one of these days it's gonna happen someone's um, gotta defeat that karen geezy in sixth place i put the soup of ideas <laughs> that was southland tales it's just not enough to say he's trying something new, you know. I, I you got to give something to your audience. This was all for him, <laughs> you know. This is like uh, he seemed to get a creative blank check out of Donnie Darko, and this is where that check went, and uh, that sucks for him, uh, and it sucks for the audience. You know, I I don't necessarily think this is fixable. Like if a new edition of Southland Tales is released, and we get the three and a half fucking hour version that. Janine Garofalo was cut out of I have no confidence that we'd be any further along that there'd be any more clarity given to this if that comes out um, let's do a, a drinking game loathing. of it fear and loathing it's Southland Tales every time something stupid feature. happens you have to drink yeah <laughs> <laughs> three hours man we might have to have an ambulance there <laughs> In fifth place, I put The Uncomfortable, uh, but I thought visually interesting uh, and uh, effective in its own lurid way, Naked Lunch. (laughs) It's not something that I would revisit again and again, I guess. It's just, uh, it's unpleasant. It's a bitter little pill. Um, I guess it's a well-made bitter little pill, and it's sort of interesting to have this interpretation of William S. Burroughs, if you're interested in that sort of weird, junky writer lifestyle. Um... I don't know. I think Cronenberg's made much better films, and I think that there are more interesting subjects, frankly, than Burroughs. Yep. In fourth place, I put Phantasm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I'm right with you, though. Like, I just... I, I don't hate the movie. Uh, in fact, you know, I, I love them for, you know, all the ideas and the energy and, like, uh, you know, just trying to make this movie with your, you know, bare hands and what you have available and casting your friends and like 
there's a lot there's a lot of potential in this but it's more potential than payoff in this movie for me um there are isolated scenes that are quite cool but uh i think especially in this day and age with the crop of horror movies that people are used to it's kind of starting to feel like a relic of days gone by and uh that hurts to say, but that's just how I feel. I do, I mean, I'm a fan of Don Coscarelli. Like, he is an original, and that's why he's in this list. And uh, Good company. Third place is where I put I Sell the Dead, which I'm a big fan of. Uh, again, uh, low budget, big heart, big ambition, good sense of humor to it in spite of the, the darkness of it, and everything's on the table. Everything's on the table. If scene to scene, you're not know what you're going to get. Aliens, zombies... You know, and it's weird in that, you know, we probably shouldn't like these two protagonists, but we really like these two protagonists. <laughs> you know? So, uh, I think a lot is accomplished with a little, and uh, I don't think this is a very well-known movie, you know, so seek out I Sell the Dead, so says Rankin Review. And if you disagree, go ahead and write me at rankinreview at gmail.com. Um, all the way at number two, brother. <laughs> I put Delicatessen, and it says the production values and just the uniqueness, the strangeness, the the vision of the movie impressed me. And, uh, yeah, it, it's unabashedly strange. It's this sort of post-apocalyptic fairy tale of sorts. But, um, I don't know. I thought it had a lot of charm, and uh, I can't compare it to anything, you know? It's like, Cohen-esque was the closest thing I could come, but uh, like I say, that's that's a compliment. Certainly doesn't touch anything that Coen's did, don't get me wrong. But uh, I, I'm kind of a fan of Delicatessen. And uh, to me, I think it's, it's one of, if not maybe my favorite thing that he's done. So, I don't know. That's, that's where I know that. But we're going to agree 100% for first place being Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. That's probably not a surprise. I kind of tip my hand in the review. But uh, I just think it's an amazing accomplishment. And, um, you know, it's up there with some of my favorite Terry Gilliam works at all so um i think that hunter s thompson is a much more fascinating subject than william s burroughs as a one leg up it definitely had on naked lunch and uh just the energy and uh like i said the different faces you see throughout the movie people you don't expect to see all giving really good one scene roles you know um it's entertaining and it's crazed and it's an experience and it's original your list is broken. My list is broken. The yeah. delicatessen's really going to stick in your cry. <laughs> I should have switched delicatessen and phantasm. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah, phantasm should be higher for sure. That, that imagination really is something that is so lacking in a lot of big budget movies. <laughs> and, to, and to see it in this tiny little movie, uh, the idea, the idea of having. A dimension accessible by a giant tuning fork. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> That's so cool. Alright, thank you so much, Jay Adrian Cook, for recording, returning for the fifth time. I think you are, 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 are I think, my number one guest. You're, you and Beckman are now neck and neck, I think. But, uh, um, yeah, you're one of those repeated guests, and uh, 
friend of the show. We love J. Adrian Cook. Yeah, suck at everyone else. Listen to his music and read his writing and fucking suck it up. <laughs> I, agree I know how to fucking sentence. advertise, don't I? Yep. Read yep. this man's fucking book. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's time for the Jerry Awards, and we're going to... We're going to do it a little differently again? Yeah, yeah. Um, what I've decided to do, I'm going to provide Larry with four nominations for each category, and Larry is going to try and guess which one was the right category. And um, shit, you know, I didn't bring any prizes Uh-oh. for you guessing. Zip. <laughs> this is a, yeah, this is really embarrassing, actually. Um, I guess you get the pride. I get the pride. Of, of, of knowing... Um, that, that you're a superior human being. All right. All right. First category is best performance. So, was it Dominique Pinon for some great clowning as Louison in Delicatessen? Benicio del Toro, who is by turns conniving, pathetic, and feral as Dr. Gonzo in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas? John Lovitz for skillfully treading the line between terrifying and hilarious as Officer Bart Bookman in Southland Tales? Or is it Peter Weller for his deadpan performance as William Lee in Naked Lunch? Hmm. See, I would probably go Benicio, but I'm, I, maybe you'll go with the survive, surprise choice of the clown. I'm going to stick to my guns and say Benicio. Um, like I said, I've never been huge, never been bowled over by Peter Weller as an actor. And Lovitz, although I think he was good in the movie, it was practically a cameo. Like, So uh, I'm going to say Benicio. A good choice, but wrong. Uh, the only reason, the only reason, is because I've seen footage of Oscar Zeta Acosta, and right. he's not a whole hell of a lot like Benicio del Toro. Right. The winner is Peter Weller. Okay. Uh, well, we just disagree on that. <laughs> my not, Jerry's. It's your Jerry's. He's a Jerry Award-winning actor. I just have to live with it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Worst performance. Peter Weller. <laughs> <laughs> no. Was it John Sparadakos, who ruins the character of Cornelius Murphy <laughs> with a clunky Irish accent and I Saw the Dead? Sarah Michelle Geller for her clearly uncomfortable performance as Krista Now in Southland Hills? Dwayne Johnson for his inexplicable mannerisms as boxer Santeros in Southland Hills? Or Judy Davis for making a hateful impression as Joan Lee in Naked Lunch? Mm. Foof. Uh, I, 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 ooh. Ooh. That's tough. <laughs> I'm going to say the dude in I Sell the Dead just because it was just a one loud squeaky wheel in a fairly uh, you know, easy-to-like movie otherwise. But um, I kind of have more pity on the other actresses. Like Judy Davis was sort of playing a fairly, fairly wretched character. I thought well enough. Um, and like I can't imagine that Kristen Now character being fun to play or interesting. <laughs> you know, like I don't know. So. Well, you know, you win the Oscar for the character, don't you? <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but I'm actually giving it to Dwayne Johnson. Yeah. Uh, because it's just ridiculous what this guy has to do, and he doesn't do it very well. No, no. <clears throat> I felt bad for him. I could see him being super stoked to finally get taken seriously as an actor, and I don't think he had any idea, like the rest of the cast, what the, what the hell this movie was. Yep. Best kill. Is it the sphere of death that drills into the henchman's head in Phantasm, <laughs> followed by Pants Wedding? Uh, was it Willie Grimes casually returns from the guillotine and I sell the dead? <laughs> was it Joan Lee gets shot in the head during a game of William Tell made more terrifying because it's based on a real kill? Story, yeah. 
Or was it Martin Kvauver, who kills himself in Southland Tales? After shooting down a mega blimp with a rocket launcher whilst atop a floating ice cream truck, he assumes the messiah pose and leaps to his death. <sighs> I gotta give it to my boy Larry Fessenden. I just love his, uh, I love his return and, again, the fact that nothing seemed to get to him. The fact that he was having to carry around his own head just seemed to be amusing to him. <laughs> and I did like that the, the movie ends with him teasing his friend that he's going to bite him. Yeah, <laughs> Get off it! But sadly, you're wrong again. Oh, damn it. You can't do anything right. It was Martin Kvauver killing himself and falling <laughs> off the ice cream truck. That's more of a what the fuck moment. <laughs> well, that's, that's how I want to go, let me tell you. Right. Best scare. Mike gets trapped under the car by evil dwarves and phantasm. The undead woman lifts off the ground while attacking the grave robbers and I sell the dead. Dr. Gonzo scares the shit out of a waitress in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, or the giant centipede sucks Kiki dry in Naked Lunch. <sighs> For best death? Yeah. Best scare, For actually. Best scare, sorry. sorry. Uh, I kind of like that vampire lunge I saw the dead, although I wouldn't say I found that like scary. I just thought it was kind of badass and cool. Ugh. A centipede? Larry, Larry, Larry. <laughs> you did better when I didn't give you these. Benicio del hints. Toro, maybe? Is that where you went with that? No, Mike gets trapped under the car. I found yeah. that scene to be really quite scary. Huh. When just have, hearing the dwarves scuttling around and then the idea of being pinned underneath a car. Yeah. I, I don't know, I must have been run over in a previous <laughs> life or something. Or maybe later in this one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's on uh, it's, it's on, on tape. It's yeah. on tape now. <laughs> now now Larry can can haul this tape out. And I'm not getting my driver's license just to run your ass over. Man. I hadn't even thought of that angle. <laughs> it couldn't offend me. I don't even have a license. <laughs> Best creep out. Okay. Which is the moment that inspires spiritual terror the most? Is it the secret of the mortuary? The moment when our heroes and phantasm open the door and find a brilliant white room stacked with dwarf barrels and a giant vibrating tuning fork <laughs> that hides another dimension. This scene is also nominated for Best What the Fuck. Was it the boat ride to the island in I Sell the Dead when Arthur Blake tells the story of the monsters in his fishing village and we realize that we're not on Earth? Right. Is it Raul and Dr. Gonzo visit Circus Circus on Ether? <laughs> or Will meets a mugwump alien for the first time in the bar, receiving his first set of orders and naked lunch? And that's a real... I couldn't tell whether or not the, the anus cockroach would be a, a, a bigger one, but I went with the mugwumps. I've got to say, I love that Ether trip into the circus place. Man. Uh, that, that's crazy, but is it... Is it creepy? Um, it, it's. I think it brings spiritual terror. Okay. Well, that'll be my vote. I'll, that's where I'll vote incorrectly this time. <laughs> you are correct in your incorrectness. <laughs> I'm giving it to the secret of the mortuary and phantasm. Yes. One of my favorite scenes. Yeah. Uh, in yeah. Anyways, uh, best laugh. Is it in Phantasm, Mike and the Tall Man confront each other in a hallway, in a standoff, take steps towards each other, we're the adversaries, 
And then, like, runs away. <laughs> Was it uh, Valentine removes her mask, terrifying our heroes and causing a zombie to go berserk, and I saw the dead? <laughs> but we never got to see her face. I know, that's one of the reasons they're so great. Was it Mademoiselle Plus being kidnapped by the Troglos, and more indignant than scared, she tells them, Merde! <laughs> In whatever that movie's called, Delicatessen. Or was it the humpy butt typewriter and naked lunch? <laughs> humpy butt typewriter and naked lunch. <laughs> Valentine removes her mask. Oh, Larry. Okay. I'm, you know, I'm feeling pretty good about this because I'm getting some revenge for, okay. for all the times that our uh, movies didn't match up. <laughs> Fucker. Okay. Biggest what the fuck. You got to get this one. It's the room in the end of Phantasm. That's why I didn't vote for it last time because it's clearly the biggest what the fuck moment. Is it the room in Phantasm? It is. <laughs> is it Arthur Blake and Willie Grimes unearth the frosty corpse of an alien? No, it's and the I room saw the Phantasm. <laughs> is it Justin Timberlake's mystifying musical number, All These Things That I've Done from no, Southland you're Tales? You're not hearing me. It's actually Phantasm. <laughs> or was it Naked Lunch? Ooh. <laughs> you said it was Naked Lunch, but you should have said Phantasm, so I'm sticking to my guns. It was Phantasm. I want to be wrong every single one of these. <laughs> You're wrong every single one. It's Naked Lunch. <laughs> oh, that was gratifying. <laughs> well, um, you've already selected your episodes for the sixth uh, Appearance on Rank and Review. <laughs> oh no, it's not. It's not the da- David Cronenberg movies, okay. is it? <laughs> We're dedicating it to body horror specifically. <laughs> Thank you so much. Is there anything you would like to uh, sell or say to the kids on the world of the wide web? Do you've got a new Facebook page? You want to? Oh yeah, yeah. My uh, author page is on Facebook now. Uh, J. Adrian Cook can be searched and. Uh, liked on Facebook. I recommend you do that. It's what all the kids are doing. And seek out Black Chaos. Uh, yes. A zombie anthology with mm-hmm. the historian at the Southern Wind. Yes. And, and the residuals. The residuals. Yes, that's my it's band. A band that plays in and around Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. And just out now for Christmas, you can purchase a copy of Alternate Polarities. Vampires Suck, which is about um, alternate universes populated by vampires, in which I have a story. Congratulations, brother. Thanks. Seek it out, people, and uh, we'll talk to you again. Dun, 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 dun. That was a bunch of WTF movies. I, that one almost broke me. Uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, another episode of Rank and Review. I would welcome your feedback at rankandreview at gmail.com. And uh, I would also appreciate it if you seek us out on Facebook and on iTunes. And if you could just mention to the other movie nerds in your life that... Uh, there's a cool little podcast called Rank and Review. I would appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. <laughs>